Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. We're in episode 231 with Dr. Air. How are you, Dr. Air? I'm doing amazing. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Busy. Thank you so much for the addiction blueprint. I love it. So it's interesting. Um, I don't always have a lot of people that are on that aren't in recovery. So this is a whole new, you know, it's a whole new deal for me. So my first question I have to ask you is why did you decide to start the addiction blueprint? And what got you interested in addiction if you're not in it? Well, you know, here's, um, here's the thing. Um, Addiction Blueprint is a, is a free resource that offers free tips and resources for people who are struggling with addiction. And the whole idea is to be able to help guide them uh, to a point where they're living better lives and recovery. Now, in terms of why I got interested in addiction, I mean, there's a myriad of reasons, right? But I think for me, it's, it's a lot of the stories, a lot of the experiences I saw firsthand uh, treating patients. And I'll give you a quick example. Uh, several years ago, as a young uh, physician, um, attending patients in the, uh, in the ER, <clears throat> treating patients with mental health disorders and addictions, I remember uh, this day when I was in the ER doing my regular duties, and I recall a young girl being wielded on a stretcher accompanied by her family members. Now, if you've ever walked in an ER or visited an ER for that matter, you know how rowdy you can be. Um, so at the time, I really didn't pay attention to what was going on because I was busy doing other things. And a patient coming in on a stretcher in an ER is a pretty regular sight, right? But, you know, about 10 minutes after this patient was wheeled in, we had a loud scream. There was pin drop silence in the ER. This was a scream from a mother who was in agony. Her daughter has just been pronounced dead. She was only 16 busy, 16 conceived after eight years of trying to have a baby. What had happened, she had taken an overdose of her mom's pain medications. Even as a physician, I was shaken to my core. So I cannot even begin to imagine how the mom felt at that time and afterwards. So it's stories like this and a lot more as well that prompted me to go ahead to study more on alternative fellowship in addiction medicine to understand addiction better so that I can help people out. And, you know, in addition to stories like this, it's also the whole, the issue of trying to help to destigmatize addiction. We know that there is a huge stigma for mental health, but we know that that stigma is even a lot more so for addiction. So when people think about um, someone who's struggling with addiction. I think the general concession, the gen general notion for a lot of people is the homeless man walking around with a brown paper bag in the alleyway, but that's not the case. It's the father, it's your mom, it's brothers, it's sisters, it's clergymen. And, you know, looking back at people who have treated, there's just a myriad of people I've treated. It's a CEO who, of a big company with three kids, but addicted to cocaine. The nurse who treated you in clinic a few days ago, who's addicted to pain pills. Your neighbor, a stay-at-home mom, who will forget to pick up her kids because she's intoxicated or an alcohol and benzodiazepines. It's the babysitter who's addicted to meth. 
It's the college man with compulsive masturbation. The college kid addicted to Adderall and giving out his Adderall to his friends as well. So I think we all need to come together to help with destigmatizing addiction. I love that because especially right now, I think living through a pandemic, it's something that our politicians don't spend enough time talking about is how many people right now all over the world, not just in America, right? All over the world are sitting home and they can't find a way out and they're scared and they have no control over anything. And that spiritual thing has been hard because they can't go to churches. They can't go to synagogues. They can't go to their, they can't come together as a community. So that spirit, whether it come in the form of grass, pill or alcohol has been the answer for this crazy pandemic. And so many people are dying over this. So if someone's at home today and they see the podcast and they say, you know what, how do I start? What is your recommendation as a doctor? I think, what do you, I think, where do I go? What do I, I, think, I do? I think you bring up something really, really important there. Um, over the last several months since the onset of the COVID pandemic, that's something I've also seen in clinic as well. It's a lot of people relapsing who have been stable, but relapsing on alcohol and drugs. It's also a lot of other people who didn't have issues with alcohol and drugs now getting, now becoming addicted because of what's going on. And there's several reasons for that, which we can talk about later. But in terms of uh, the answer to your question, it's all about one, accepting that you have a problem and knowing that you need help. Now that's easier said than done because I do have a lot of people who come to me with the realization that they're struggling and they need help. Now, some people on the other hand, think, well, this is something I can control. I'm just doing this because of whatever reason. And they don't realize that they actually struggle and need help. So the very first step is acceptance. Now, there's a ton of resources out there. What I tell a lot of people is to start with, if you don't know where to go, you could start with even just your primary care doctor. Let him know, you know what you're struggling with. He has a ton of resources. He can guide you in the right direction. And um, um, help you get the help you need. There's also the internet. There is, you can Google alcohol treatment, drug treatment, and you're gonna have a ton of resources pop up. In this time and era where we have access to a lot of information, there is so much out there. Now I know that that can get overwhelming and confusing for a lot of people because the question is, which of these do I actually go with? Um, so again, it's narrowing it down as much as possible, going to those reputable websites. Uh, there's the SAMHSA website, for instance, there are the government websites, there's drugs.org on the internet as well. I have a resource called Addiction Blueprint. There are also many support groups out there. There's a ton of Facebook groups out there where you can go in, talk to like-minded people who are suffering just like you are who can also help you and tell you what has worked for them and what hasn't. I think we also really have to understand that addiction treatment is personalized. Mm -hmm. It's not a one shoe fits everybody, no. It's a case of as much as possible finding that treatment that works for you. As much as it's personalized, it's also comprehensive. There's no silver bullet for addiction treatment. There's no magic, magic elixir. It's combining all of these different facets 
of addiction treatment to help, whether it's inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, detox, support groups, um, following up with your primary care providers, attending virtual groups, but combining all of those, but being able to get to the right resource to help you feel better. I can't overemphasize how important that is in addition to getting the right mental health uh, uh, professional to help you as well. Because that's something else we see, right? We see a lot of people who are just struggling with the mental health and because of that, you know, the spiral out of control and, you know, it's drugs and alcohol and they're trying to treat the addiction when the root cause, which is maybe a mental health problem or maybe just a sleep issue, hasn't been taken care of. So again, back to your question, talk to your primary care, talk to friends, talk to people who have been in the same shoes as you are. There is the internet, the government websites out there. There's several treatment facilities out there. Right now in the US alone, I think there's over 14,000 addiction treatment facilities. And um, if you look at the last year, I believe we've had almost 4 million people in the United States alone getting treatment for alcohol and, uh, and drug addiction. But we know that's just a tip of the iceberg because there's a ton of other people out there who need help, but haven't gotten the help they need yet. And I love you brought up the shame. There's so much shame. In fact, when I got sober, you know, a little over 14 years ago, I was, I even, I patented the phrase sober, not ashamed because I had so much shame because so many, it's that stigma, stigmatization, I can't even say the word, how it's stigmatized with the brown paper bag and knowing that, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't, I'm never, I'm, I'm a leper. I am a morally a bad person, which brings me to the spiritual aspect of this because I truly believe that to get and remain sober, you have to have some sort of spirituality. What do you believe on? What do you believe in that as being a doctor? Because doctors are all about science, right? And the spiritual thing is so much bigger, right? It's bigger than even a doctor. It's bigger than the priest. It's bigger than the church, right? It's bigger than the Pope. It's bigger than Aha, Allah, whatever. It's so much bigger. What are your thoughts on that? Well, for a lot of the patients of Sain who have come to me with one religious affiliation or the other, some form of spirituality, whatever that may mean to you, I overall tend to see them do better. Again, this takes us back to what we talked about earlier on, talking about the fact that addiction treatment is comprehensive. There's no one thing that's going to take care of your addiction. It's, it's, um, it's a combination of all of these factors, including spirituality. So for those who come to me and tell me, well, they used to be religious or they used to be spiritual, depending on how they choose to look at it, whatever that religion is for them. But over the years, they have actually pushed that to the side and now they're struggling. I usually would advise them to go back to, is a church, go back to church. Are you a Muslim? Do you need to go back to the mosque and attend regularly? Do you need to uh, come together with your spiritual group? Whatever that is for you whatever you consider a higher power getting closer to your higher power and knowing that there's a higher power above you that can actually help you make that step i just see people who do that get a lot better a lot faster so definitely i think that's something a lot of people should consider spirituality as relates to uh to addiction 
So, and I love that you said that there's no magic bullet, right? There's no magic thing that's going to make you feel better. So when people go to the, you know, they get, they go into treatment, they get naltrexone, they get Vivitrol, they get Anabuse, they get Gabapentin, they get all these different cocktails that come in pill form as well, right? That's right. And what, what are your thoughts on that and medication in the whole process? If somebody's out there and they're like, well, wait a minute, I, I have to tell you that I thought it was so interesting when I was working in, when I, I'm a certified recovery specialist as well. And so when I went and did my training in a rehab facility and I'm in there and there's some patients that go up to the nurse's station and the nurse is like giving them this and that and this and that in this little cup, right? Like, what is this you're giving me? And you're like, wait a minute, you just scored something off the street from somebody you wouldn't even have dinner with. And you're asking this medical professional what it is you're giving them. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, when you look at the traditional model of addiction treatment, so we're looking at, you know, AA and, you know, what things it used to be like in the past before we even considered medication assisted treatment at all in addiction. Um, when you look at the traditional model, there's a ton of people, a lot of people who have recovered and are living happier lives in recovery using the traditional model, AA groups and all. So I'm on full support of the traditional model of treatment. And I think the 12 steps have helped thousands, thousands, perhaps millions of people live better life in recovery. However, like we said, with addiction treatment, there's a lot of different moving parts. Now, the traditional model may not work for everybody, which means you, know, you need to consider other options. So medication-assisted treatment, so let's just define this really quickly for your listeners. Medication-assisted treatment simply means involving um, adding medications uh, in combination with counseling to help with addiction. Now, when it comes to medication-assisted treatment, we have to look at detox to start with. So if you're struggling with alcohol drugs, we will usually go ahead and do a detox. Now, the reason for a detox is twofold. One, to keep you safe, because we know that detoxing off of alcohol and benzodiazepines can cause death if not done properly. So we never advise people to stop cold turkey if they drink it heavily or if they're using heavy doses of benzodiazepines like clonopane and diazepam and adivan. So that's one of the reasons why we do detox because we want to avoid the delirium tremens and seizures, which could complicate the detox process and lead to death. Now, the second reason is to keep you comfortable when we do detox. Keeping you comfortable means just making sure we take care of the nausea or the vomiting or the diarrhea you're experiencing or the crawling skin sensations. And we can do that by prescribing medications to help with the nausea or to help with sleep or to help with anxiety. And then following detox, there are other medications, just like you mentioned a while ago, these that can help you long-term. So whether we're talking naltrexone, Vivitrol, disulfiram, acamprosib, these are medications that can help you. But then again, I don't want people to cling on to this and feel that's all that's going to help you. This is a part of your treatment. It's a component of your treatment. Counseling is crucial because with addiction, we have to understand that it's really important for us to go all the way back to find the root cause. What's the reason you're addicted to these drugs or to this to alcohol? You have to explore that with counseling, with group sessions. So make sure you can process that, walk towards 
living in recovery, and also get to the point where you can actually develop coping mechanisms that will help you cope with living a better life in recovery. So I'm a proponent of medications, but I always will let people know that it's not just medications. It's a lot of this coming in together, medications, counseling, good aftercare, support groups, friends and family, being in the right environment. We have to bring all of this together. Otherwise, it's going to be a struggle. We talk about not just being sober, but we talk about recovery, which for me is an added component of being sober. It's getting off of the drugs and alcohol, being sober, but adding that extra layer uh, to make sure you continue to live a, a better life in recovery. Otherwise, what we see in a lot of cases is people stop and then without actually digging in deeper to explore the reasons why they were addicted in the first place, sadly, we see a relapse. And we know the recidivism rates for drugs and alcohol is really, really high. So it's important to bring all these components on board. And is that what you talk about in your blueprint? Because I'm just going to use a blueprint. So when you build a house, right, you have this blueprint. You're like, this is where the this is where the electric's going to go. This is where the water's going to go. This is where the sewer's going to go. This is where the walls are going to go. Ad nauseum, I could go on and on and on. So talk about your blueprint that you talk about in your on your website. Yeah. So in addition to what I've just talked about, bringing about all of these components and board to help with recovery, it's also incorporating a wellness piece into your recovery. Now, we know how hard alcohol and drugs can be on the body. In fact, some studies have shown that heavy alcohol and drug use can decrease your lifespan by as much as 10 to 15 years. We know the effect of drugs and alcohol on the brain. It affects the brain. The brain is the most complex organ of the body with billions of neurons firing and sending messages across. And when you begin to use drugs heavily, it affects all of that transmission and disrupts the neurochemistry of the brain. We know that drugs and alcohol affects the liver, affects the kidney, affects virtually all organs of the body. Now, if you look at a lot of the Facebook groups, right, this is one of the reasons why you will see a lot of people posting before recovery and after recovery photos. And busy, I'm sure you'll agree with me that the difference is always so much. It's, it's just jarring almost because addiction affects your skin as well. Addiction uh, to drugs and alcohol will affect your dentition. Meth users, for instance, I see a ton of meth users. And even before they've actually told me what the drug of choice is, just by listening to them talk, just by having them open their mouth, you already know because the dentition is all messed up. So drugs and alcohol affect virtually all organs of the body. And I think it's really important that because of how much of a beating our bodies take when we abuse drugs and alcohol, I think it's really important to bring in wellness to recovery. Now, when I say wellness, I'm referring to the various tenets of lifestyle medicine. So I'm talking about nutrition, I'm talking about physical exercise, I'm talking about stress management, sleep hygiene, social connectedness. These are things that will help to a large extent, help you live a better life, even while you're still actively using and when you eventually transition over to the recovery, uh, to, to living uh, in recovery. And I mean, we can go to town talking about various things we can do just because we only have one body right. We have to protect it. We have to take care of it. Otherwise, you're going to struggle. 
And you know, just talking about something I very commonly hear day in, day out when I talk to patients. As simple as it may sound, busy, one thing I hear a lot of people struggle with is sleep. Mm. Now, in terms of, did you know that people who are struggling with drugs and alcohol tend to have as high as five times um, five times more insomnia that's difficult to sleep in as compared to people who don't. So insomnia, difficult to sleep in is a big problem for people who are struggling with drugs and alcohol and who are also living in recovery. So one thing I tend to do is I tend to, I tend to prior to even discussing about medications and whether they need medications for sleep is talk about sleep hygiene. So if you don't mind, I'm going to run through 10 quick tips easy tips to help people sleep better. Now, the very first one is diet. Now, some foods will inhibit your sleep. So foods high in sugars and refined fats and spicy foods will affect your sleep. So it's very important to avoid this kind of foods or at least limit how much of this foods you're eating. And also avoiding heavy meals before bedtime. Now, the second is exercise. Studies have shown that exercising just 15 to 30 minutes a day is enough to give you a lot of benefits for sleep. Now, the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine recommends about 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week. And you can choose to break that up however you want to break this up. But we're talking cardio. Now, weight training is good, but we're talking 150 minutes of cardio, broken up however you want to break that up. But just 15 minutes a day is enough to help with sleep. Now, let's talk about three, light. As much as possible, you want to get some sunlight during the daytime, if you can. Of course, if you're living in Alaska in the winter, that's not going to happen, right? But even at nighttime, you want to try to turn the light in the house down, just so that your body can begin to acclimatize to the fact that it's bedtime, and then you can release those natural chemicals in your brain, the melatonin that will help you fall asleep. Now, the fourth thing is electronic devices. So phones, tablets, and computers. The reason is these emit blue light. So I usually will tell my patients, one hour before bedtime, put those devices away. Um, yes, I know a lot of these devices have the nighttime mode, which is better, but you will still get some blue light. So the, the best thing to do is put your devices away one hour to bedtime. Now, let's talk about bedroom temperature. Your bedroom should be dark, cold, and quiet at night. And this is because your body temperature fluctuates during the night. And you want to, if possible, have the, the temperature of your room between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Studies have shown that that's the most comfortable temperature for you when you sleep. And of course, in your bedroom, you want to try and cut down the noise. Now, I know that's not always going to be possible if you have the neighbor's dog constantly barking, or if you have traffic, or if you live close to a real track and the trains are going. But you can also use the white noise from the white noise machine, or even from your phone. There are lots of apps that can help you drown out that noise so you can sleep better. Bedroom color, believe it or not, busy. your bedroom color plays a role. So you want to consider a color that's calming for you. And usually that's the lighter shades of white and gray and blue and green. You don't want to have your bedroom in a dark 
purple or dark red color, for instance, especially if you don't find that soothing. And then bedtime routines. Try to stick with a set bedtime routine. If you're going to bed at 10 p.m. every day, try to make that consistent. If you're waking up at 6 every day, try to make that consistent. And aim for between 7 to 8 hours on average for an adult, 9 hours, you know, for some people. People are different. Some people need more. Some people need, you know, you know less. But on average, I'll say 7 to 9 hours is what you should aim for. Now, alcohol, of course. We're talking about alcohol. If you have an issue with alcohol, you shouldn't be drinking, right? Alcohol is, in addition to being a stimulant, it's also a diuretic. So it's going to wake you up at night and you're going to have to use the restroom from time to time and that's going to disrupt your sleep. There is the myth that alcohol helps with sleep. But here's the thing. Alcohol will affect your REM sleep. It's going to affect the total amount of sleep you have uh, altogether. Your sleep is going to be broken up. So you definitely want to you know, push that away and limit or stop altogether how much alcohol you're drinking. Same thing for coffee and tea. These are stimulants. These are also diuretics. It'll make you go to the restroom. That will disrupt your sleep. And then the very last thing I'm going to add to this is winding down before bedtime. Now, in this time and era, we're all so stimulated. Everybody is moving at the speed of life. And we have to do this and this and this and this. And you have people just going and going and going until it's bedtime. Make out time to wind down. Make out time to do something relaxing for you whatever that is for you. It could be just taking a, a hot bath. It could be reading a book. It could be meditating. It could be yoga, but something to wind you down before you eventually go to bed. Now, for people who are able to carry on this, I just see them do a lot better in terms of their sleep. And if you're getting enough sleep, chances are it's less likely that you're going to relapse. Because when you're not getting enough sleep, what we notice is a lot of irritability, a lot of distractibility, a lot of impulsibility, poor regulation of your emotions. So sleep is crucial, crucial, crucial. And I think that's something we should take more seriously than we currently do. I love that you brought that up. Can I tell you? Because people who listen, I'm just going to bring up Deepak Chopra's name because he's, I'm a big follower of Deepak and we know he's got many degrees as well, just like you do. And he says all the time, that sleep is the number one medicine to longevity. Really important, really, really important. And you know, the more we do this and actually carry on these activities that help us live the better. Because, you know, what I see very commonly is a lot of people coming into clinic and wanting a medication to sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a physician, and yes, I prescribe medications. But like I tell people all the time, my happiest moments are when I can have a patient come in and leave without me having to prescribe a medication. That's one of the reasons why I'm really big on wellness, you know. And in addition to what we've just talked about, sleep, it's also nutrition. I cannot even begin to overemphasize over how important that is. For people who eat better, they just feel better. And, you know, whatever that is for you, um, you know, there's a ton of diets out there, right? There's the paleo diet, there's the Mediterranean diet, there's this and there's that. Now, I, I'm not here to talk about, you know, diet as a whole, but if you go with the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine, right, the recommendation from the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine is to eat a predominantly um, whole food plant-based diet. 
Now, that's easier said than done. That's not for everybody, I know that. Not everybody's willing to become vegetarian and just eat plants, but it's all about tending towards that. So what that means is just cutting down on your red meat intake, for instance, because red meat, it's a lot of cholesterol. And you know, so you wanna try and cut that down and eat healthier. Eating healthier means cutting out on the processed foods. So one thing I tell people all the time is when you go to the grocery shop and you pick up um, something from the shelf, the more ingredients it has on the back, the more harmful it is to you. So if you, if you pick up an apple, for instance, right, there's no ingredient list, there's nothing, it's just an apple. But now if you pick up a can of peanut butter, for instance, you're gonna see a ton of ingredients at the back. The more ingredients you see there, the more harmful it is to you. Because a lot of these uh, uh, foods on the grocery shelves have tons of ingredients that are not very healthy for, for the body. So if you're looking at something that has partially hydrogenated fats, for instance, that's not very good because you know that's a lot of fats. And we talk about as much as possible staying away from fats and if you must, then you want to eat the healthier fats, which is usually the unsaturated fats, not the saturated fats or the trans fats. Now, trans fats is just the worst of the worst. And we find that in a lot of processed foods. Um, peanut butter, for instance, has a lot of hydrogenated fats, and that's just to keep the, the, the texture stable so that it doesn't separate. And then, you know, we're also talking about processed foods like the cookies and, you know, the processed, the cakes and all of that. It's not to say you shouldn't eat them at all. That would be the preference, but we know we need to live, right? So it's all about limiting, cutting down, and if you can, avoiding these uh, foods uh, that are not very healthy for you. And also, you know, I hear people ask all the time, should I be taking my vitamins? Should I be taking my supplements? Here's the thing about this. Nothing against vitamins, nothing against supplements. My advice usually is eat a rainbow of foods. Eat as many colors as you can. Go to the grocery shop, pick up fresh fruits and vegetables, pick up fruits and vegetables you haven't tried out before in different colors. If you can consistently eat a rainbow of foods, you will get all the vitamins and minerals you need. But that's not so easy to do because, I mean, we live very busy lives and people skip meals and then they get home and they're tired and it's the quickest meal to prepare. So for me, the way I see multivitamins and supplements is it's kind of like an insurance policy, right, where you take these vitamins and supplements because you're not eating as much colors as you should. So yes, you can take your vitamins. Yes, you can take your supplements if you're not eating as many colors as you should. But if you are, you really don't. And if you're taking vitamins and supplements, then you have to make sure you're getting good, great vitamins and supplements. And so Dr. Ayer, what do you say to somebody? Because when someone is coming off of alcohol, right? Because people don't talk about how much sugar is in alcohol, right? A bottle of wine, I remember hearing, and I don't know if this is true, but like a bottle of wine is like a piece of chocolate cake, if not maybe a whole chocolate cake of sugar and the way the body breaks it down. So when you, when you quit drinking and you take that out of your, out of your diet and then you have this, your body craves that sugar, 
where instead of picking up that cake, that pie, that ice cream, what are some other ideas that you have out there for people to satisfy that craving that they're having? Um, you know, so I'll, um, I'll use myself as an example here. I have a sweet tooth, I always have. And there used to be a time where I just would have my stash of candy and different kinds of candy uh, in, in the pantry. And as long as it's there, I'm going to eat it. So what I did over the last several years, what I've done is stop stashing my pantry with candy, but rather I stash my pantry with nuts. So healthy nuts, and then I buy lots of, lots of fruits and vegetables, so I'm snacking on carrots as compared to eating candy. So I think it's changing your mindset to what you have around you. Because if you have those cakes and sweets and all of those, it's only normal. You're going to eat it. So you want to try and change that around and have healthier options. And here's the thing with processed foods, right? Whether it's alcohol or the cakes or the candy. Now, in terms of eating carbohydrates generally, right? When you eat, let's take a piece of cake. You eat a piece of cake. What happens is your body breaks it down, breaks down the carbohydrates into sugars, and then when the, your sugar, blood sugar level rises, there is an organ in your body called the pancreas, which is located right in the abdominal area, which releases insulin. And then that helps to control the sugar levels, sends the sugar levels back into the cells so that your blood sugar levels are not so high. Now, the advantage of eating proper food, whole food diet, is this process takes a longer period. So your body, you're able to feel full for longer while your body is breaking up the calories in your body. On the other hand, when you eat a lot of processed foods and you have these artificial sugars in your body, the pancreas is working really hard. It tries to bring down the sugar levels, but this process is a lot shorter so that your body begins to feel hungry, even if you still have a lot of, a lot of calories in your body, which you haven't burnt out yet. So you just find people eating more and more and more, even if you still have a lot of calories. And as a result, you see a lot of people just gaining weight because of this. So I think it's, it's a mindset shift. Healthier options around you as much as possible. I think that will go a very long way in terms of just helping you control how much you're eating and how much calories you end up taking in. The sad thing is, I find, is that it's more expensive, isn't it, to eat healthy? Well... Sadly so, yes it is. You're, you are so correct. Um, you're so right. Uh, but you know, I think if you, if you look at how much you could save from not drinking, from not spending $200 a week or a day on cocaine or meth, I think you could translate a lot of those savings into buying healthier options, fruits, vegetables, and nuts. So the very first thing is, let's get off of those drugs and alcohol. Let's save the money. And we can use that for a ton of other things, including just living healthier. And I love that you're not such a proponent of the, you know, Ambien and going and getting, picking up that pill because so many people get prescribed these drugs and then they wake up the next day and they feel groggy and they feel like lethargic. And then sometimes, even if you haven't had a drink for at least six months, and then you you haven't slept well, you wake up the next day, why do you feel hungover? 
Why is that? And you haven't even drank. So medications act differently, right? And when we talk about sleep medications, they're different sleep medications. Some of them are really short acting. Some of them are long acting. So take a medication like Ambien, for instance, that's a short acting sedative. So it works really quickly. And that's the reason why whenever we prescribe a medication like Ambien, the advice is always take it as you're walking into bed because it will knock you out. It can potentially knock you out really quickly. And also people have been known to have very strange behaviors with Ambien. Uh, so it causes abnormal, abnormal sleep behavior. So you want to take your Ambien and walk straight into bed. Ambien is short acting, but there's some other medications that are longer acting. A medication like trazodone, for instance, mm. is longer acting. Mm. So in a lot of cases, we see people who come in complaining about feeling really groggy and tired in the daytime after taking trazodone at night. Now, in terms of dosing, trazodone for most patients when we prescribe will usually start at doses of about 50 milligrams, which is one tab a day. Now, that's usually enough for some people. For some other people, on the other hand, 50 milligrams is enough, enough to knock them out and they wake up in the morning still feeling groggy and tired. So in cases like that, what we usually would recommend is one, either take the trazodone a little earlier in the evening, maybe about 8 p.m. instead of 10 p.m., or take a half a pill, which is 25 milligrams. Um, so that way you don't wake up feeling groggy. But, you know, again, yes, at that time, there's some people need medications. Yes. But should we have medications as a last resort? Definitely. I'll say try various sleep hygiene techniques. Try natural supplements like melatonin to help you sleep before you get into the heavier gun, so to speak, like trazodone and other sleep medications we have out there. Of course, if you're struggling with addiction, I usually will not even advise you to take any medication you can possibly get addicted to. So if you come to me struggling with addiction, I will not prescribe a medication like Ambien. I will not prescribe any of the benzodiazepines because that is a very, very slippery slope. And what about gabapentin? I'm hearing a lot of people are getting put on gabapentin these days. So gabapentin is one of those medications that has several uses. Um, in addiction treatment, we use it to help with alcohol cravings. We use it to help with anxiety. But here's something we've also noticed. A lot of people are also beginning to abuse gabapentin. You can now go out there on the street and buy gabapentin and pay 10 bucks a pill. So that's a medication I am very careful to prescribe as well. When I do prescribe it as much as possible, I like to one, either prescribe it short term or keep a very close eye and make sure I'm actually monitoring that patient regularly and consistently to make sure they're not abusing that substance. So there's a ton of medications out that we prescribe that we can, that, that can help. Like you talked about gabapentin. We've also talked about others like um, naltrexone, like the Vivitrol injection as well, which some people do quite well on, but it comes back to the fact that we have to treat everybody as an individual. Because your friend did well on naltrexone doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do well on naltrexone. You have to understand some of these medications also have side effects, right? So it could well be that your friend is doing well on naltrexone, but you try naltrexone and just realize that you're constantly tired or you're constantly exhausted or you're just vomiting or you have a lot of nausea, which means it's not the best for you, which will mean 
we would have to consider another medication that will be good for you. So I, I can't say it enough. It's personalized treatment. And of course, it also has to be comprehensive treatment to help you get to that point where you're living better in recovery. And I just want to ask one of the, so when people go into treatment centers, I always find it interesting that they do the same thing with each person that walks in, right? They do, they, I mean, I don't know physically if their, their medication is the same, but they bring them in, they get them off alcohol, they introduce them to the 12 steps. You're here for 28 days. Now, good luck. God bless. Send you out. It might cost you a lot of money. It might, insurance might pick it up. We have no idea, but then they let people go home to these places where there's triggers everywhere and the family especially god love family but a lot of times a little uh, people go home and nothing has changed except they left for 28 days so that's a very important point and you know that brings me to aftercare um yes we have a lot of people who go through addiction treatments whether it's inpatient or outpatient get out and relapse into these we get that all the time what that simply means is it's not just going into treatment. Now, there's only so much you're going to learn and be able to do in a 28 or 30 day treatment session, right? It's what follows afterwards. Mm -hmm. You have to have a proper aftercare in place. Proper aftercare simply means following up with a psychiatrist or a mental health provider to explore the need for treatment for mental health issues or sleep issues like we discussed earlier. It's following up with your primary care doctor to make sure physically you're healthy enough. Um, it's following up with your therapist to process trauma which you may have had in the past which could be contributing to your addiction to process issues, the root cause of what's causing your addiction. It's joining support groups to help you stay amongst the other people, similar like-minded people who will help with your recovery journey. It's friends and family, reconnecting with friends and family to make sure you have support. It's being in the right environment. And in fact, with environment, that's something that's so, so crucial. I'll tell you something really quickly, uh, Bizzy. The, the first commercial bungee jumping took place in 1988 in uh, Queenstown, New Zealand. Now, it's off a bridge known as the Kawarau Bridge, and it's a 43-meter drop into a gorge, wherein you're strapped up as a bungee jumper. And there are two groups of people who go there. It's a huge tourist site. Two groups, groups of people go there. One group go there knowing they're going to go jump. They've heard about it. They're excited. They're going to go bungee jumping. And then there's another group who go there just to watch that awesome experience. Well, here's what happens for those who go to watch. So they're out there on the platform watching others jump. But as they watch others, others jump, over time, they develop confidence. They realize that this is possible. It can be done. Other people have done it. Maybe I can do it. And as a result of that, some of these people end up going ahead and actually bungee jumping, even if they never imagined they would make that 43 meter jump. So I say this because people can vicariously live off of other people's experiences and actually get to a better place. So it's also very important that if you have gone through treatment, you want to place yourself in the right environment where you have people doing what it is you want to do, which is living free off of drugs and alcohol. Being in a good environment plays a 
huge rule, a huge rule. We tell people all the time after treatment, if you're leaving uh, an inpatient or an outpatient treatment facility, if you're gonna go back to the same friends who are using meth, chances are you're gonna relapse regardless of how awesome that uh, addiction treatment was. If you're using alcohol heavily and you're going back to a home where you have a spouse who drinks heavily and has a ton of alcohol in the house, chances are you're going to relapse. So you want to set the stage as you're transitioning. Talk to your spouse. If your spouse is using, perhaps your spouse needs to get treatment as well. We need to get the alcohol out of the house. Now, if it's not there, if it's not in sight, you know, it's less likely that you'll end up drinking. So aftercare is crucial. You have to put the proper aftercare program in place to make sure you continue with that journey. As you know, busy. Re addiction treatment, it's a job. Recovery is a journey. It's not a one-time thing. It's not, I'm going to go there today and then I'm going to be awesome and it's up. No, it's a journey. And you have to continue with that journey because you're going to have ups and downs. There are going to be periods where things are going to trigger your addiction. You're going to drive past an alcohol place and you're going to want to stop by. You're going to drive past that restaurant or that bar where you used to hang out with friends. And that's going to be a trigger. So you want to put things in place for your aftercare to help you make that transition. Dr. Ayer, this has been awesome. You're so, I just love your knowledge and it was so layman, so meaning people could understand, you know, it was put out very easy. I really love that. I love the sleep. I love recognizing that, you know, we're not robots and that we have to get to the core of this and going and picking up another pill or something outside of yourself to make you feel okay might not be the answer all the time. It's nutrition. It's all in your own home a lot of times, right? You can do this all from your own home. That's right. That's right. That's right. And you know, I can't, I can't say this enough. We don't have enough people doing what you're doing right now. So I want to drop my hat to you and thank you for what you do. A lot of, a lot of people need people like us who can talk more about this and help as many people as they can. But the, the need is huge and a lot of people are struggling. And if it's just one person, just one person, we can touch every day. I think that's going to go along with whether it's with your podcast. Uh, whether it's with you know books and materials we put out there, but just a lot of voices coming out to hopefully help this stigmatize addiction and help people actually make an attempt to get help. Because like we talked about a while ago, it's a lot of shame, it's a lot of despair, it's a lot of hopelessness. And some people don't want to get the help because they are ashamed or because they are afraid. But we need to get the help we need so that we can get our lives back, so we can get back to our jobs, so we can get back to our families so we can save on finances, so we can get out of those legal issues we're having. So anything you can do to get yourself on the right path, let's walk towards it and let's continue to spread the word and hopefully help to continue to destigmatize addiction. I love that. And I love that, you know, what I heard so much is willingness. It's just having that willingness. And we know it's scary, right? It's scary that these people are going to give up. I mean, for me to give up my best friend, which was alcohol, it's crazy. But every time I got into the ring with it was Muhammad Ali. I felt like alcohol was like Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson. And let's know, I know I'm not beating those guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right and you know thinking, thinking, talking about boxing right you know that's the reason why you have a boxer going to the ring and even if he's trained and he's motivated to fight it's not just it's not just 
the, the willpower. It's also the way power. And part of the way power comes from support. So you see a boxer in the ring. After a round, he goes back to his corner. And he's not just resting. He's also getting coaching. He's also getting training from his team. And you'll also find out that you have his family members sitting by the ringside. You have his friends cheering him on. So that's the support. You know, so we talk about support all the time. I, we have to continue to do that. Call a friend up today. I recently had someone who told me he saved the life of a friend with just a text message. Mm -hmm. Hadn't heard from a friend in years, decided to send his friend just a simple text message. At that moment, his friend was writing a suicide note to kill himself. His friend later on told him that that singular text message, checking up on him, saved a life. So let's not think that we have to do something big in terms of supporting other people. It can be something as simple as a visit to a friend, a phone call, or just a text message. Oh my gosh, Dr. Ayer, thank you so much. This has been so educational and so uplifting. And all of your, I mean, everything you put out there, anybody can do from them, you know, can do from home. And if people want to learn more about you, they can go, what's your website? So they can go to addictionblueprint.com. This is a free uh, resource where I offer free tips and resources. I also have a Facebook group called Inspiring Addiction Recovery. And again, it's the same thing offering support out there. And uh, for those who live in uh, Dallas and Texas, we have an outpatient addiction treatment center called Prime Wellness Center, where we incorporate recovery with wellness. So nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, and sleep hygiene, just because we see a lot of people do a lot better when we incorporate wellness with recovery. Well, let's put, I'm gonna have those links in with the podcast. So if anybody wants to learn more, you can just go to the bio that's gonna go along with the podcast and click those links. I'll have them right up there for you. And thank you again for your time. Have thank the you. happiest of holidays. I hope you have those three boys. I hope they don't keep you too much on your toes. You might not have to get on an elliptical machine or anything. Never a dull moment with three boys. So <laughs> <laughs> exciting times. Very exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. Wonderful talking to you. And to the listeners out there, we wish you all Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I will be on next week, but just for everybody that's out there, I just want to wish everybody a happy holiday. And until next time, keep getting busy, living sober. Bye-bye.